Let's pray. Lord God, as we turn again to Your Word, we ask that You would speak to us this morning. That You would give us a glimpse as to who You are, who we are in light of You, and what You would have us do, and how You would have us live. May Your Spirit, may He be here, active, imparting life to us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Proverbs 20, verse 29, speaks about the glory of young men. And the glory of young men is found in their strength. And as toxic as that may sound to us today, strength really is a gift from the Lord. And like all good gifts, that strength can be used for good, or it can be used for evil. And this is the truth. Young men are often physically strong, but young men are often very foolhardy with their strength as well. This is why the second part of that verse ends by saying, gray hair is the splendor of the old. So hopefully that young man doesn't get himself killed in his strength and he ages long enough that he gets gray hair. The implication here is that wisdom generally comes with age and it is of a greater value than just pure physical strength. I have uh, this year taken up coaching uh, my son's basketball team. And an older gentleman, when he found out I was, I was coaching, told me something that uh, occurred when his children were giving, or growing up, that the coach, sometimes him, would, would give these uh, athletes a word of the week. And through giving them a word of the week, uh, he would teach them some virtue, something of importance throughout uh, that, in both life and in sports. And for this advice given to me by an older gentleman, I started doing that. One week I showed up at practice and I was not prepared and I did not have a word. And one of the kids goes, what's our word of the week? What's our word of the week this week? And I had to think quick on my feet. But one of the reasons why we play sports, one of the reasons why we let our sons and our daughters play sports is they are a microcosm of life. I told them, one practice, most of you, if not all of you, are not going to be professional basketball players. Most of you, if not all of you, are not going to play in college. So why are we playing? I say, it's fun. Well, yeah, it is, it is fun. But sports teach us about life. And in sports, you need physical strength and ability, but even more than that, you need mental strength. You need self-control. You need discipline. You need perseverance. No matter how strong you are physically, if you cannot control that strength, you are easily defeated. And I have to say that we are in a desperate need today for more strong young men and strong young women in the church. And yes, masculine and feminine strength manifest themselves in different ways because men and women are shocking different. They are not the same. And the most important form of strength we need today in the church is the strength of character and conviction. This is sorely lacking. To be a Christian in today's world is to invite opposition. And if you are not someone of strength of character and conviction, you're not going to last long. And we're going to look today at the idea of the strength of the Lord and how the Lord displays His strength through His people in ways that we wouldn't expect, in ways that are counterintuitive. And it is for that reason that this strength is good news for us. Because Micah 1-3 through speaks mostly about the judgment God is bringing upon the nation of Israel. 
And one of the leading causes of their judgment was failed and evil leadership. The leaders of Israel were largely unfaithful, they were selfish, and they were wicked. They had broken the covenant made with God, and they had abused their own people. Micah 4 and 5 then are an interlude of that judgment to offer some hope. And chapter 5 zooms in at first on new leadership. What does everybody want when their leaders are terrible? You want a new leader. You want to get rid of those old ones and replace them with someone new, someone better. And the first verse of Micah 5 opens by recounting the judgment and shame coming to Jerusalem and how God will judge or punish Jerusalem's judge. We don't think about someone sitting on a, a bench with a gavel. Think about the book of Judges, the leaders. God is going to judge the leaders of Israel. And then it turns in Micah 5.2 to a promise of a new leader, a new king. But you, O Bethlehem, Apathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me, or for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now that verse should sound very, very familiar to all of you. It's cited in Matthew 2.6 when the wise men come to King Herod and they say, hey, where is this Messiah going to be born? And he goes to the people who know what they're talking about and they say, hey, Micah 5.2 tells us where he's going to be born. He is going to be born in Bethlehem. And that should cause us to pause for a moment. Micah 5.2 was written 700 to 800 years before the birth of Christ. 700 to 800 years before Christ was born, they said Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem. Those things don't happen on accident. And yet Caesar in his pride brings about the fulfillment of the birth of the king who would be the stone upon which Rome would shatter. Caesar Augustus, wanting to count how great his kingdom was, put out a census bringing the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. The strength of the Lord will be displayed in the birth of someone from Bethlehem. Why? Why Bethlehem? Well, Bethlehem is a small, insignificant town. Why would God have his king be born in Bethlehem? Well, two reasons. First, this harkens back to David. David, the first true good king of Israel, was, was born and from Bethlehem. And in 2 Samuel 7, David goes to the Lord as the king and he says to the Lord, I want to build you a house. Talking about the temple. I want to build you this temple. And even though David was a, a man after God's own heart, God looks at David and tells him, no, you don't get to build my temple. You don't get to build my house. Your son is going to do that. But he offers him a counteroffer. He says, no, David, I am going to build you a house. Now this is a play on words. A house for a king is a dynasty, a lineage. I am going to build for you, David, a house. And we read this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This passage is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. 
If you want to understand how to put together your Old Testament and your New Testament, and you ignore 2 Samuel 7, you will be lost. In this passage, the prophets will pick up, and every major prophet in the minor, minor prophets, when they speak about the coming of the Messiah, they are pointing directly back to 2 Samuel 7. Messiah just means the anointed one, the king who would come. In the Greek, we translate that into Christ, or Christos, which in the English is Christ. This prophecy is about Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the promised king that God would bring from the line of David. So God promised to David and to Israel that someone from David's line would be born, and this person would sit upon the throne of David forever, and his kingdom would be forever. Last week we looked a little bit at the nature of Christ's kingdom. If you want to understand how these all fit together again, Micah is a good place to be, and so is 2 Samuel 7. This is an eternal kingdom with an eternal offspring. How can someone sit on the throne forever? Well, he has to be eternal. And this guy will have a great name, and he will have a global kingdom. Now listen carefully to that again. He's going to have an eternal kingdom, an eternal offspring, a great name, and a global worldwide kingdom. All of those categories, if you're reading your Bible carefully, are promises and expansions upon the promises given to Abraham. When God called Abraham Abraham out of Ur, He promised to Abraham that He would give him a land, a great name, and an offspring. A three-year offspring, I'm going to bless every family of the world. And if you even go back a few chapters before that, in Genesis 1-3, through 3, what do we find there? A global kingdom, the whole world. They promised of an offspring who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. And all of this comes to a head in Christ. The offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David, and the offspring of Adam. And we read in 2 Corinthians 1 that we find all the fulfillments, all the promises of God we find yes and fulfilled in Christ. All of them. Not some. Every last one of them. This child born in Bethlehem, Micah says, will shepherd the flock. And we have again that idea of the shepherd king. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will be the king. And he will be a shepherd. And through him, the strength of the Lord will be displayed. And the irony here, is this child is not born in a palace, but he's born in a stable. He's not born in Rome, where you would expect a king to be born. He's not born in Jerusalem, where you would expect a Jewish king to be born. But he's literally born in some no-name backwater town in a conquered and occupied nation. Why does the Lord do things this way? Because then we see that it is His strength and not ours that accomplishes these things. And so we get a glimpse here also that this shepherd king will have an ancient origin. That he is coming from old, from ancient of days. Now there is some debate here as whether this is just another reference to him coming from David's line or if this is a reference to his divinity, that he is God. I believe the latter, that he is indeed This is a prophecy that this king will be from the Lord. He will be the Lord Himself. His origin is from eternity past. And He will shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord. 
This is the shepherd king, the Messiah, the Christ. And with his birth, we see the promises of God coming true in the ushering in of a new age. That this shepherd king will subdue the nations, he will secure his people, and he will be their prince of peace. This kingdom, though, we have to note, is more than a chunk of land in the Middle East. In fact, the land God gave to Israel was merely a sign of what the whole world was supposed to look like and what it would look like one day. This shepherd king will rule over all the nations of the world. Micah 4. This shepherd king will rule over everyone and all the way to the ends of the earth. If you have Micah 5 open, look at verse 4. This is stated rather plainly here for us. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. What is the kingdom of the Jewish king? Is it just the land of Israel? No. It is the ends of the earth. If you put Micah 4 and you put Micah 5 together, you see that he's going to rule over not just the nation of Israel, but he's going to rule over every nation. In Micah 5, his name is going to be great through the ends of the earth. That he will be king over everything. He will conquer the nations and they will bend the knee to him. For he made the nations, he made the world, he sustains it, and he died for it. This is something we need to understand about the Jews of Jesus' time. They wanted a Christ to come, a Messiah to come, who would give them their chunk of land back. Who would drive the Romans out so that they could be free. And sometimes, well-meaning preachers come in and fault them for thinking too much about the land. Actually, they were thinking too little about the land. They were only obsessed with a chunk of the world where he came for all of it. The entirety of this world is his. The kingdom in the land includes the entire universe. Christ Jesus, through his resurrection, through his saving power, through his authority, we see the strength of the Lord displayed to the ends of the earth. The next set of verses give us a glimpse into how God will do this. How is God going to bring the kingdom to the ends of the earth? Well, he's going to bring the kingdom to the ends of the earth through his people, a small and faithful remnant. So again, those first three chapters of the book, God is speaking to the nation of Israel saying, you are going to be judged. I am going to send you into exile. Assyria and Babylon will come in and take everything that you have. And even with that conquering, though, God is working to actually take over the world through a people. Because God knows that not all of Israel is unfaithful. He knows that some are still in league with Him. There is a faithful remnant. Those who have not bent the knee to the false gods of their neighbors. Look at verses 7-9. through Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. 
which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. While in exile, God was accomplishing His plan to bring the nations to their knees. Through Israel being conquered, God was going to conquer. God literally scattered Israel abroad, He says, among the nations like showers upon the grass, like mist spread out throughout the world. God was spreading Israel throughout the world so that He could take over the world. And so the Israelites lived, married, had children, built synagogues and worshipped the Lord in Persia, in Babylon, and in Rome. And through that, they drew in many people. Consider this for a moment. How did these foreign wise men know that a Jewish king was going to be born? Why did the wise men come to seek the birth of Jesus? Sometimes people are like, well, God was probably working through some other religion to tell them that this was going to happen. No. There were Jews scattered all around the world. And they had heard that this Messiah was going to be born. The the Jews in dispersion, the wise men, were likely either half-Jews, Jews Jews who had intermarried with other people, or God-fearers, that is, Gentiles who worshipped the Lord because of Jewish influence. The same is almost certainly true about the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about in the book of Acts. Why does he have a scroll of Isaiah in front of him? How did he get that? Well, because there were Jews in Ethiopia. And he was either probably a half-Jew, most likely if you're reading Acts carefully, because if he was a full Gentile, then the conversion of the Gentiles a few chapters later isn't a big deal, because there's already one. But the Ethiopian eunuch is most likely, like the Samaritans, a half-Jew. God planted his faithful remnant among the nations as his spies, as his operatives. And brothers and sisters, that's you. You are planted among the nations just like they were. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter picks up this idea and he applies, he applies it to believe in Jews and Gentiles. Listen to these words. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter writes to the church, to the elect exiles who are in dispersion. They've been dispersed among the nations. Those planted among the nations, those in exile, those in Christ, all according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This was His plan. To scatter His people into the rebelling nations. And that victory would come through their initial defeat. Again, consider the ministry of the early church. On the first day of the church, the day of Pentecost, believing Jews come to Jerusalem from every nation. And they are so ingrained in those nations that when the, uh, when the apostles start speaking in tongues, they recognize that as their native language. And yet they're in Jerusalem to worship the Lord God. Ready, waiting to hear His plan. Then you have the Apostle Paul who literally travels around the Roman Empire and his method for planting churches and preaching the Gospels is what? That all throughout the Roman Empire, there are synagogues. 
And he goes first to the synagogues and he preaches. And in the synagogues he gets converts of not only Jewish people, but Gentiles who are in those synagogues. Your early church is made up almost exclusively of converts from the synagogues. God-fearers and Jews. That is the backbone of the early church. Whether it is Ephesus, Galatia, Rome, Colossae, or Thessalonica, or many more cities that Paul visited and preached the gospel. God had dispersed His people as a part of His plan. He did not huddle them into one corner. Through the exile, God laid His plan to conquer the world. And in this way, the world was conquered in a way that doesn't make sense. Right, if you're going to be like the old uh, Pinky in the Brain cartoon, what are we going to do tonight? We're going to take over the world. Same thing we do every night. How would you do that? You'd gather all your strength in one spot and then you'd launch from there and try to take over the world. God says, that's not how I'm going to do it. I'm going to let my people get conquered and then they're going to get taken away by force out of the land they want and through that, I'm going to take over the world. This is the strength of the Lord. He does it how we would not expect it to be done. You think about the early church Caesar tried to force people to worship him. Caesar was the most powerful man in the world at that time. By the threat of the sword or being thrown to lions, he said, you will sacrifice incense to me and then you can have a certificate and you can live in peace in this um, society. If not, you're going to get killed. Does anybody still worship Caesar today? No. Do people still worship Jesus? Yes. No one worships Caesar. Caesar fell. And if you were a gambling person at that point in time, you would have gotten pretty long odds that Jesus would have been the one to win. This is how God conquers. So he describes, he describes his church or the remnant as young lions dispersed among the nations ready to devour them. This is how God conquers. This is how we see the strength of the Lord. And this is us even to this day. We are, in one sense, exiles. And that our kingdom that we ultimately belong to, the kingdom of Christ, is not yet fully here. Our primary allegiance is to Him. And He has not returned yet. But that kingdom is invading this world. And so you and I, we are planted among the nations, we are planted among the states, and we are called to live holy lives and to preach the Gospel. And we are called, like the early church, to suffer as we oppose the ways of this world. And though this seems like to the world a losing strategy, we see that God wins. We conquer. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the faithfulness of our testimony. So in no uncertain terms, God has planted you here in the Twin Cities. He has planted you in a specific community, in a specific family, in a specific job, a specific church, a specific nation, in a specific time. These things are not accidents. You have neighbors. You have co-workers. You have friends and family members that the Lord has given to you. And it is our job to be those devouring lions. That is who we are. To display the strength of the Lord through holy living 
through speaking the truth, and through not compromising with the world. And when the Lord appoints it, to suffer. To suffer as our Savior did. This is how the Lord shows His strength. Not through the sword, but through changing the world, through changing hearts and minds. This is how the world was changed. This is how Rome was Christianized. This is how Northern Africa was Christianized. This is how Europe and the Americas were Christianized. And though it appears Christianity may be waning in this moment in time, and though we may feel more like we are exiles now than we have in hundreds of years, the Lord is still in control and His plan hasn't changed. God uses a remnant, a faithful minority to accomplish His will, and that is the calling of the church. This idea of judgment, of being scattered among the nations, may not sound very hopeful, but God also promises here to bring a cleansing and a renewal to God's people and to the nations. And we are in a time where we need such a cleansing. Call it renewal, call it revival, call it a reformation. I think that's probably the best term for it. We need a reformation. We have in the church in America taken on a lot of idols of our day. We have baptized them into the church. The worship of the self. The idea of primarily thinking of ourselves as therapeutic beings. That it's all about feeling good. The ideas of relativism, of wokeness, of social justice, and plain worldliness infiltrate the church just like we see in Micah 1-3. through We need a cleansing. And the Lord says that He will bring that. Verse 12. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So God promises a cleansing and a renewal to the people of Israel. And that extends even to the nations that they are planted in. God says, I will remove your idols. I will take away your sorceries. And I will remove your Asherah images. Now if you don't know what an Asherah pole is, well, an a- the Asherah was a Canaanite fertility goddess represented by a carving on a pole. You can figure out what that pole probably looked like. And as that pagan fertility goddess, the Israelites brought that into their worship of the Lord, of Jehovah, of Yahweh. It was not that Israel really ever stopped worshiping the Lord, but rather Israel kept adding more things to worship. In southern Judah, there's a dig site from around the time period here of Micah. And there is an inscription there of one of these Asherah poles. And this is what it says. It says this, I bless you by Yahweh. That's the Lord's personal name. I bless you by Yahweh and His Asherah. Right there. They had a giant phallic symbol and they put the Lord's name on it to worship both Him and the Canaan fertility goddess. And God says that through sending His shepherd king, through this exile, through the scattering of His people, He will bring a cleansing. He will cleanse the nations and He will cleanse His own people. And again, He does it in ways that we wouldn't expect. 
He saves and He cleanses us, not through the sword, but through the Word. Consider, consider a couple examples here from world history, our church history. We live in a time where I think it's, it's safe to say that it feels pretty dark, especially in this state. And it's not just the weather. And as dark as it can be, consider these examples from church history. I've mentioned St. Boniface to you before, but listen carefully. Boniface was an Anglo-Saxon monk. So I don't know what images you get in your head when you think of a monk, but this guy probably doesn't fit uh, the image that you have of a monk. In the 700s AD, he was a missionary to an area that today we now know to be Germany. So he's, he's from England, he became a missionary to Germany. And he went to the Germanic tribes, and these Germanic tribes, much like the Canaanites, worshipped trees. And there was a sacred oak there known as either Thor's oak or Jupiter's oak. So the pagan religions, they had a lot of crossover. You could worship Thor, call him one name in the uh, Germanic way, and he could be Jupiter in the Roman way, one in the same. Either way, this oak was revered and worshipped by the local tribes. So as I've said before, if you have European ancestors, somewhere back there you have pagan fools who bent the knee to trees and rocks. There's nothing special about any people group. We all, all of our ancestors were silly. Boniface comes up to that tree in front of these Germanic tribes that he wants to reach with the gospel. And you know what he was obsessed with? He was obsessed with being really winsome and culturally sensitive. So he came up to that, to that giant tree with an axe in his hand And he said, if Thor is really God, may he strike me dead. And he took one thwack at the tree. And as the story goes, there was a giant bursting sound and the tree fell down. And the tribe sat there, shocked. And Boniface converted these people and then they took that wood from the tree and they built it into a church. Stories like this from church history could be multiplied again and again and from missionaries all around the world. You'll have a pagan witch doctor who has all of this seeming power, and the gospel will come in, and the pagan witch doctor says, I can't do anything anymore. Why? Because that's not God, and God has now come to this place. The strength of the Lord is greater. May the Lord raise up a thousand more bonifices who are willing to anger the pagans by chopping down their idols and then using the wreckage to rebuild churches. More bonifices who fear God more than men. I'll give you another example. Rome. Rome was the height, or the low point, of moral decadence, especially sexually. Again, our days are sexually dark. Their days were far worse. This is the culture and the society that God planted his church into to start. The temple worship of many of the gods all across the Roman Empire included temple prostitutes. And throughout Roman culture, Roman men were allowed in that area of life to do whatever they wanted. In fact, it was expected and it was encouraged. Contrary to that, Roman women were commanded to remain chaste so that they could protect the family name and lineage. But men, you got to do whatever you wanted as long as you were a Roman citizen and not a slave, and most of them were not Roman citizens. So a very select group of people got to do whatever they wanted to do. During the Roman period of time, child trafficking was legal, encouraged, and done out in the open. In fact, unwanted children were more often than not 
just abandoned in the wilderness or along the roadside. And there what would happen to them is they would either be eaten alive by animals, by wild animals, or the church would come by and rescue them and raise them, or they would be rescued by somebody else who would place them in brothels. So much for the glory of Rome. Teachers and philosophers would often bring young men into their schools so that they could take advantage of them. Again, as bad as our current sexual ethics are, and they are bad, it is nothing new. The idea that progressive ideology and sexuality is actually progressing is a farce. It's regressing. We've been here. We've done this. The abuses are untold and how bad they are. So consider these words from a book. You want to read a a book about Rome and culture war? Pagans and Christians in the City by Stephen Smith. Culture wars uh, from the Tiber to the Potomac. He describes the behavior of Roman emperors. This is how he puts it. Gratifying themselves in extravagant uh, sexual orgies involving siblings, colleagues, spouses, children, and even infants. And multiple pairings. Well, what about the average citizen? He writes, There also seems to have been a widespread practice of predatory acts with boys. It was normal for a family of any standing to dedicate one one slave to a son's protection, especially on the otherwise unsupervised walk to and from school. But safe arrival at school was no sure security. Philosopher teachers were widely suspected to be taking liberties with their pupils. It was so bad in Rome that you had to have, you couldn't let your kids play out in the streets. One slave had to walk around with a sword to make sure that somebody didn't just take advantage of them. Or as Tom Holland notes in his book, Dominion, the rich Romans set out to build the first heated pools in their fancy villas, and you know where they built them? Upon the mass graves of the unwanted dead slaves in Esquiline Hill were the first heated swimming pools sat upon a ditch of carcasses. There's a road I often drive by uh, up, up in the Duluth area where they've shut it down because they found some Native American bones. And it's good and right to be respectful to those remains. But where did that idea come from? Not from Rome, that's for sure. That was the darkness of their time. That is what the church was born into. And by the late 400s, Rome had a Christian emperor. And that Christian emperor banned, outlawed prostitution. Again, you go into that first century of the church, no one thought that was going to happen. The odds were not in their favor. But the strength of the Lord is displayed in weird ways. In ways that do not make sense to us. The slavery that dominated the Roman Empire was overthrown when Rome became Christianized and it was replaced by feudalism. It should be noted that in world history, Christianity in the West is the only civilization to overthrow slavery and it did it twice. It did it to Rome and then it did it after it backslid into slavery itself. Christianity has changed the world. It is changing the world and it will change the world. Because the Lord is strong. And salvation comes through His power. And He does it by planting His people among the nations. That's you. Do you look at the current setbacks and you want to lose heart? 
don't. We've been in dire straits than this before. How does the Lord change the world? Through little, small acts of faithfulness. Through faithful remnant who has been washed by the blood of the Lamb, who has repented of their sins, and is walking in faith. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater force in this world than the power of salvation at work in you. That is the strength of the Lord. If He can change sinners like us into holy individuals, walking by faith, He can and will do it to others. Therefore, we must go forward and work to that end, knowing that the Lord saves and He saves through Christ. That He has transformed societies before, He is doing so now, and He will do so again until He returns. And He will do that through His faithful remnant spread across this world. And that is what we strive to be at Christ Bible Church. You are a part of that remnant. And we will continue to do what those who have done or those who have gone before us have done. Walk in faith. Day by day be that devouring young lion in the midst of a flock. Preaching and living the gospel by the strength of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us this vision in Micah 5. That through conquering or being conquered, you conquer. That through scattering your people abroad, you change lives, you bring people into the kingdom, and you bring your kingdom to this world. Lord, we ask that your kingdom would indeed come. That your will would be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And Lord, that we might be a small, faithful part of that plan. That we here at Christ Bible Church, we would live the gospel, we would preach the gospel, and that when you call us home, we would see your face and you would greet us with those words, well done, good and faithful servants. Hasten the day, Lord, when your kingdom comes to this earth. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.